He's in a Rottweiler. And I'm from the Rottweiler yeah. house to Rottweiler yours. Billy, get smacked silly. She gets smacked silly. What you do from the... What you do? When you're ready. But I was born ready. And I was already on fish and spaghetti. Creep with the culture. Rap like a culture. Attack like a vulture. See you in the culture. Said I'll get you. Where the picture? Got 13 inches. I see the big picture. If it's to get richer, I'll probably get richer. If not, burn it. Got like a furnace. Welcome to DFS MVP, Daily Fantasy Sports Most Valuable Podcast, presented by 444 Football. I'm 444 Senior DFS Editor, Chris Raybon, joined as always by my guy, Mr. TJ Hernandez. Week two, TJ, what's going on, man? How was your week one? Uh, it was, I'm, I'm glad it's over. I had a lot of running backs that were popular and expensive, but uh, I am excited for week two, not just because week one didn't go as planned, but uh, we got some in-season data to work with now, and uh, last week you're running on a lot of speculation, so we got a little bit of glimpse into teams that might be changing, teams that are going to stay the same, and uh, I'm excited, man. Week two is here. Most definitely a lot of stuff to get to. DFS theory will be on the Vegas lines. And I think that has a lot of relevance when it comes to week one, a week one in which uh, 10 of the 15 games failed to go over and 10 of the 12 games on the main slate failed to go over. So a lot of interesting things to talk about there. Also want to let you guys know that if you're listening to this podcast right now and you are not a 4 for 4 DFS subscriber, if you rate and review the podcast and send a screenshot to DFSMVP at 444.com, we will give you a 25% discount on a 4 for 4 DFS subscription. So get to it, rate and review the podcast, send a screenshot to DFSMVP at 444.com. The music that played us in today was one of my all-time favorite songs, Let's Get It, Diddy, featuring G-Dep and Black Rob off the saga continues from 1999. It's week two. We're already like fish and spaghetti. So let's get right into it. TJ, who do you have at QB in week one? I mean, in week two. Quarterback. In week two, I'm, I'm going to start with... Uh... Probably one of the more popular plays this week, but I, I don't think you need to get too cute here. I have Tom Brady at 9,200 on FanDuel, 7,900 on DraftKings. It's pretty uh, well known at this point. It's been maybe three years running now, four years, that you just target uh, New Orleans with your passing games whenever possible. Uh, we saw Sam Bradford drop a 346 and three on the Saints last week. And then we have uh, New England as a six and a half point road favorite with the highest projected point total of the week. Uh, I mean, we know that the Patriots are, are going to prepare well for every team, but they are uh, kind of coming off a of bye week they they haven't played since uh last thursday on opening opening night and then new orleans played monday night so new orleans has a, a short week so that that could come into play and then uh, we know that we want quarterbacks that are going to be on the winning side i mentioned that new england is a favorite but uh since 2002 the patriots have only lost back-to-back games five times with brady under center they did have one uh losing streak with matt castle under there but uh only five times with brady and then uh brandon cook's revenge game we know how brandon cooks likes to get off in that dome and whoever's throwing him the ball is probably gonna have a big week so i think uh brady cook's connection could be on fire this week 
Definitely like the call. I'm going with Matt Ryan, 8,200 on FanDuel, 7,500 on DraftKings. And my thinking here is we know we have these two games with over-unders of 53-plus and only two other games with over-unders higher than 46 as of this recording on Wednesday night. So there's expected to be a pretty big discrepancy in the high scoring games and all the other ones. And we know that passing games are correlated, opposing passing games are correlated. And so I'm comfortable going with Matt Ryan here at home. He, I think he offers the best uh, of both worlds of being the home favorite, um, high implied point total, 28 points. And he's the cheapest of the four on, on FanDuel and he's right there among the cheapest on DraftKings, just a hundred dollars more than Aaron Rodgers. Matt Ryan in two meetings versus Dom Capers Green Bay Packer defense a season ago, 55 of 73 passing. That's 75% completion rate, 680 yards. That is 340 per game and 9.3 per attempt. Seven touchdowns, no picks. I do not see how the Packers match up to the Falcons in this game, even though Kyle Shanahan is no longer calling plays. We saw that Kyle Shanahan is not some kind of magic man. His 49ers scored three whole points at home against the Carolina Panthers in week one. So I don't think that, again, all of the Atlanta Falcons' success can just be chalked up to Kyle Shanahan. Remember, Atlanta struggled mightily in 2015, Shanahan's first year there. Matt Ryan, I think he will smash this week. Green Bay, as I talked about last week, I I believe, has three cornerbacks that were ranked in the bottom 11 of 139 qualifiers in passer rating allowed last season. So Green Bay not going to get a pass like they did last week at home against Seattle. Seattle struggles on the road. Their offensive line, because of the lack of talent there, when you go on the road and you have to do the silent count and the crowd noise is a factor, it's just really difficult. That Seattle offense does not travel well. I expect Green Bay to have a lot more trouble on the road in the Dome in Atlanta in week number two yeah and i was just gonna say one other thing not only is atlanta at home but they're they're opening their new stadium so uh i think the fans are going to be extra raucous this week so that could i think that's a really good call there yeah you got some narrative street going there always a good sign let's go on a running back tj who are you looking at at the position i know you got your eyes on a discount option running back yeah, it's a guy I've been waiting to play all summer that I've been drafting in all my season-long leagues, and I was going to play him last week, but they didn't play football. Uh, Jaquiz Rogers of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, 6,600 on FanDuel, 4,400 on DraftKings, so we're getting a really big discount over there on DraftKings. Tampa Bay's favored by seven at home uh, against the Bears, who rank 25th in running back schedule-adjusted fantasy points allowed. Uh, in the three games that Jaquiz Rogers started last year for the Buccaneers, he averaged a 25-108.33 touchdown line. That uh, comes out to 16.6 PPR points per game, or about running back eight numbers at the end of season last year, and he's priced as the running back 34 on DraftKings this week. Uh, I always really like having a 
piece of a, a dirt Carter backfield, especially when there is a clear starter. Uh, when when all of their backs are healthy, it could get a little bit muddy. But with um, the with the suspension to to Doug Martin, we know Quiz is going to carry the workload, and he isn't going to catch a ton of balls. But again, Tampa Bay's favored by a big number, so he's going to get a lot of that uh, positive game script uh, down the stretch. And just as a whole, uh, there's only six active play callers that offer their backfields a higher percentage of uh, the touch share than Dirk Cotter. So that's why I always really like getting uh, the clear starter in his backfield. And then, uh, like I mentioned, Quiz is really priced down on DraftKings, and he's still really affordable on FanDuel as the running back 17. But what intrigues me about him on FanDuel is that he's a perfect price pivot off of uh, Tyron Montgomery, who is uh, 6,500 on FanDuel. And he's probably going to be one of the more popular running back plays. We have them projected for really similar ownership on DraftKings, but it looks like Montgomery's going to be owned uh, quite a bit higher than Quiz on FanDuel. So I really like that as a term- tournament option over there as well. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think that's a really good um, pivot on both sides, just because on FanDuel you have Ty Montgomery right there. And then on DraftKings, I think even though in a normal week, maybe Quiz home favorite 4400 probably going to get upwards of 18 touches uh, would be a chalk play but because you had uh, Tariq Cohen put up such a big game last week I think he's going to be higher owned and then you have somebody like Alvin Kamara in this high scoring game leading the Saints in snaps um at running back snaps last week so he's probably also going to be highly owned so there's a bunch of different kind of game theory pivots you have off to quiz Rogers and another thing about his matchup is that the Bears strong front seven we talked about it last week but they lost linebacker Jarrell Freeman which mm-hmm. according to some was one of the best linebackers in the league and one of the best coverage linebackers so maybe Jaquiz does catch a few balls in that game I'm looking at Marshawn Lynch now I think this is the the eruption spot for Marshawn Lynch at home double digit favorite against the Jets Oakland implied for 28 points that means they could score four touchdowns I think Marshawn Lynch is going to get his in this game. Watching the Jets last week, it just seemed play after play. They were just getting gashed straight up the middle. And then not only that, but then they were getting gashed in the open field as well. That is not a good sign when you have to go on the road across the country to face beast mode, well-rested, look good last week. The Jets gave up 190 yards rushing last week, 42 attempts as well, both most in the league. The game script likely to favor Oakland again. And the good thing about this is that for the Jets' defense, they're going to have to play a lot of zone because they have all these rookies and just inexperienced players and they, they can't just line up man to man. Um, they're going to get toasted and against the Raiders, you have to account for Amari Cooper, Michael Crabtree, now Jared Cook up the seam. There's a lot of passing game options you have to account for with Oakland to where you can't just load the box and try to stop the run. And Oakland has one of the better offensive lines in the league. And I think the Jets are going to have to be content with giving up four, five, six-yard gains to Marshawn Lynch sometimes because they can't let Amari Cooper beat them over the top. They can't let Michael Crabtree just keep catching 10, 15-yard passes on them all day. So I think this sets up really well for Marshawn Lynch. There always there always is some danger of game script going awry with him just because he only played on about 
50% of the Raiders snaps last week. So if Oakland scores in other ways, which they very well could, you know, Derek Carr also has a good matchup as do the Oakland pass catchers. There could be a scenario where if Oakland gets up big early in the game or if they get a defensive touchdown or something, um, Marshawn Lynch may kind of be put on ice for a large portion of the game. But I think there's a low likelihood of that happening. 31% of games with double digit spreads over the last three seasons have featured multiple rushing touchdowns. So I think Marshawn Lynch, pretty strong bet for a touchdown, good price point to where he can smash value if he has a hundred yards and, and a touchdown or even multiple uh, touchdowns. So I'm, I'm really liking Marshawn um, this week. Let's get into the wide receiver position. TJ, I know you have some some guys you're looking at that maybe aren't being talked about as much this week. Wide receiver. Yeah, uh, both kind of value guys and I think both uh, players in spots that we could really take advantage of because the way pricing shakes out, or at least what I've seen so far, is if people want to, uh, they're going to be able to pay up for the receivers in those two games we mentioned up top, that New Orleans-New England game and the Green Bay-Atlanta game. We, we know there's uh, you got the Julio, you got Jordy, so those guys are going to be popular, and, and that means that uh, if you're playing in tournaments, if you just go to a different price range, that's always a really fun way to different, different, differentiate your lineup, I'm sorry. Uh, and one of those guys that I like to start with is Emmanuel Sanders, who is $6,400 on Facebook. FanDuel and $5,200 on DraftKings. Now, uh, this whole Denver offense is really interesting because there's always a case of this. Every week, there is uh, a player or multiple players on a primetime game that didn't finish before pricing came out. So pricing doesn't adjust for uh, what we saw in week one or the, the previous week. And nobody on Denver had a really huge game, but Trevor Simeon played really well. And we know that the Broncos are generally going to have a a very concentrated passing attack. Pretty much everything is going to go through Manny Sanders and Demarius Thomas. So in my opinion, they're both priced down a little bit. But uh, Emmanuel Sanders is especially affordable over on DraftKings where he he's our top DraftKings value among wide receivers actually on the 4 for 4 uh, value report. So I like those spots where players aren't priced appropriately. We know why. And then when you add to the fact that people are probably going to be ignoring it, uh, that that's a really good spot. They're playing against the Cowboys who aren't a necessarily prohibitive matchup. They're okay, uh, despite what Eli Manning wants you to believe from last week. But uh, it, but they're, they're going to see all the targets. Uh, Manning and, and DT are going to see all the targets in, in an okay matchup at a very affordable price. So I always want to target those value situations. And then another player who saw uh, double-digit targets last week and is also going largely ignored is Terrell Pryor. He's 6800 on FanDuel and $6,000 on DraftKings. Uh, 11 targets versus Philly. He only caught 6 for 66, so that's probably why a lot of people that aren't running all the numbers uh, might not notice. But he was second in the league in percentage team air yards, and that was with the seventh most air yards per target. So not only is he seen uh high volume, but he's seen deeper targets, which uh, we know from a study you did last year, Chris, that for fantasy purposes, at least deeper targets uh, are a lot more efficient. And Pryor's going to see a pretty big chunk of targets in this offense. 
I like being attached to to uh, Kirk Cousins with my pass catchers. I think he's a uh, a good real quarterback, and we've seen him put up good fantasy numbers. The only thing he was missing was uh, a good red zone receiver outside of Jordan Reed, and Terrell Pryor is that. The the Rams secondary ranks thirty first in uh, preseason adjusted fantasy points allowed. We roll with that preseason data till we get uh, three or four weeks of data to to. Uh, account for the regular season, but still coming into the season rank 31st and Terrell Pryor is going to draw Tremaine Johnson for most of the game. Uh, last year, Tremaine Johnson was among the most targeted cornerbacks on a, a per route basis. And last week he was the most targeted cornerback on a per route basis per ESPN Mike Clay's uh, weekly cornerback wide receiver chart. So we already saw Pryor get a lot of volume, should expect more this week against a pretty weak secondary. And I'm excited about using him because I think he's going to go uh, pretty largely ignored. Yeah, I really like those calls because every week I think there are a few games where, first of all, we know that the NFL is a passing league. Two-thirds of offensive production comes from the passing game. And when you have kind of these unsexy games that no one really knows what to do with, like the Broncos, Cowboys, like the Rams, Redskins, their passing game options go overlooked but the bottom line is if you're you can get 10 targets you know eight to ten targets and some good amount of air yards out of a receiver in those games those guys are going to go largely under owned and it might not always be a correlation situation like it would be in maybe the Packers Falcons game or the Patriots Saints game but they're always going to be these wide receivers that that put up big numbers in a game just because they're their team's number one option and they got good value and I really like the Sanders call with the with the top four for four value because because if you look at just some of the the four for four metrics, um, had a lot of success last week. If we look at the winning lineups, um, for my Raybon's review column this week, I went over some of it. But in the winning millionaire maker lineup, Carson Wentz was in there. He was our top value at quarterback. Uh, routinely popped up in the the most optimal lineup of the week. And then you know, it, it also had Antonio Brown, which was one of our top values, if not the top value at wide receiver. I forget. Um, also had the top uh, GPP odd hit rate uh, projection. Then with Sean McCoy and Todd Gurley were in that line. They were number three and number five in projected GPP um, odds of hitting. And then Larry Fitzgerald and Michael Crabtree were number four and number seven among wide receivers in that same metric. And, and Zach Ertz was in the top three among tight ends. Uh, and the Rams were the top um, projected defense um, in terms of GPP odds. So just a lot of success using those four for four metrics in, in, in tournaments last week. Of course, Le'Veon Bell, um, one, the one big disappointment, but hard to um, really read too much into that. That was just kind of an outlying performance for him. Um, lowest yardage total of his uh, NFL career. So um, can't, these are all odds. You can't win them all, but um, a lot of success using that. So I really like the Sanders call uh, and the prior call. I have Julio Jones, 8,800 on FanDuel, 9,200 on DK versus the Packers. And if I like Matt Ryan, of course it follows that I'm going to like Julio Jones in this game. Um, I, don't, I think it's just a case of don't overthink it too much. This week you have what's expected to be one of the mo- high, most highest scoring games of the season. Um, it's not very often that you see a game with an over-under of 53 or more. We have two this week. 
Julio Jones, one of the best receivers in football in what's expected to be one of the most highest scoring games of the year. As mentioned, Green Bay, three corners in the bottom 11 among 139 qualifiers and passer rating allowed last year. Dan Quinn talked about getting Julio more involved this week. I'm buying that narrative. I think they can really do some damage against this Packer defense that didn't get tested a lot. And that it's really that simple. Julio Jones, you don't need that much of a um, explanation for him. I think in terms of roster construction, you do want to get a little creative in tournaments with him. Use some of the things TJ and myself have talked about in the past in regards to stacking. Maybe get an opposing game correlation. Maybe get a running back um, in that stack with Julio because most people will shy away from that. Maybe a Tevin Coleman or something like that. Just a way to kind of differentiate your Julio lineups where you don't just have Julio, um, Matt Ryan stacked, you know, in, in all your lineups like I think a large amount of people with. Um, maybe run back with Jordy Nelson. Maybe you run it back with a different Packers pass catcher. You run it back with Ty Montgomery or something like that. But just if you're using it in tournaments, just make he is going to be highly owned. So just make sure you do something to differentiate a little bit there. And then the other wide receiver, this just sounds like a repeat of week one, but Larry Fitzgerald is in a great spot yet again. He's 6,600 on FanDuel and 6,500 on DraftKings at the Indianapolis Colts. Larry Fitz, 13 targets last week. Can't be mad at that. Caught only six. Was a victim of Carson Palmer's scattershot accuracy in week one. Carson Palmer looked like those rest days that he was taking all preseason long really hurt. We know the, the the Cardinals wide receivers outside of Larry were struggling in the offseason as well. And it just looked out of sync um, beyond the fact that the Cardinals could not run the ball with David Johnson uh, before he got hurt or after. And this week with David Johnson out, I think Larry Fitzgerald becomes the predominant means of chain movement for this Cardinals offense. I think he's going to get his normal target share. And I think he has ridiculous target upside because I think he could also take a lot of David Johnson's workload. I don't think Kerwin Williams is that guy that's going to um, take up work in the passing game in his two highest volume games of his career. Um, he failed to catch a pass. Andre Ellington will play on passing downs. I don't think Jermaine Gresham will be too involved because the Cardinals just lost their left tackle um, to injury. So I think Gresham will be helping block a lot, which would free up Larry Fitz is just that main underneath route runner team still have to respect John Brown, JJ Nelson, guys like that running deep. So I think Fitzgerald just has a really good matchup. Um, Colts cornerback, converted cornerback TJ Green was getting roasted last week by uh, Rams slot receiver Cooper Cup. He was a rookie in his first NFL game catching passes from Jared Goff and went four for 76 and a touchdown last week. It remains to be seen if the Colts put Green out there again or if they go in a different direction, perhaps with Quincy Wilson, the rookie, or something like that. But either way, the the Colts secondary is really decimated. They don't have Vontae Davis and just a, a really uh, lackluster defense in terms of talent on, on all three levels. Their pass rush will probably not be too much of a factor either. So I think really great spot for Larry. Seventh in red zone targets last year with 20. Second in targets inside the 10 with 12. Probably the top red zone uh, player for them now that David Johnson is out of the lineup. Let's go to the tight end position. And TJ, who you got? Tight end. 
Yeah, uh, before I do move on to tight end, I just want to make one more note on those skill positions. Uh, we, we know we have some general rules for lineup construction, uh, kind of paying up for running back, taking cheaper targets at wide receiver. But you mentioned Julio, and I, I think this is one of those weeks where if I can get to Julio in my cash lineups, I want to do it because that's just such a good spot. Um, but, uh, moving on to tight end, I'm, I'm going to kind of continue the theme of my, uh, kind of off the board plays. And this week is interesting because we got a couple guys that I think are, are pretty clearly the chalk in Rob Gronkowski and Colby Fleener. But the interesting thing about them being the chalk is they are on, uh, completely opposite ends of the spectrum, especially on DraftKings. So, uh, Gronk's priced way above everybody else. And then Fleener's a really great value. So what's happening is we have all these guys in the middle, but not close to them. So we don't have a natural price pivot, which is always uh, a really good tournament strategy. So if we're going to other tight ends, it's basically just with a completely different roster construction. The one player that does show up as uh, pretty much a perfect price pivot, at least on DraftKings, is Charles Clay at $3,000. He's 5200 on FanDuel. Uh, if we look at the, the ceiling values on 4 for 4, he's a top two ceiling value on DraftKings. He saw league best nine targets, which accounted for 33% of all of Buffalo's targets in week one. Uh, the... Bills are underdogs, but Carolina's ranked 28th in tight end adjusted fantasy points allowed. And again, looking at that ceiling, looking at the fact that he can be a price pivot who's off of the guy that's probably going to be the most popular play of the week, uh, I think that's a really interesting way to go. Wow, that that is a really interesting one. I, I Charles Clay was not even on my radar, um, so I'm going to have to look at that. That that was a really surprising one to me. Um, I, I thought you were going to go with like the, the Jimmy Graham or something coming off the... Uh... <laughs> I like that. That whole tier. That's but that's the thing. This week, that whole tier of the the Jimmys, the the Jordan Reeds, the Zach Ertz, they're all they're all priced together, but pretty much like the same uh, uh, distance below Gronk. So it just makes for a really interesting uh, tournament play. You know who is an interesting uh, price pivot that I I think I will have a decent amount of exposure to is Jared Cook actually. Um, sure. I think he's he's in an interesting spot against that same Jets defense that Clay just uh, tore apart last mm-hmm. week. So um, that's another one. The the whole Raiders offense really because yeah. they're they're in a spot where they have the second highest implied point total and the Jets are going to be a popular target for opposing defenses, but they should just be a, a popular target for offenses as a whole or teams as a whole because teams are just going to run over them. But with those two games we talked about, I think the Raiders could go largely ignored. So I really like that whole Raiders team and and GPPs. Right, yeah, the Raiders and that Seahawks offense as well coming off mm-hmm. the bad game on. Um, a couple of teams with high implied point totals that are probably not going to see their due in ownership. Speaking of the Raiders, TJ, who you got at kicker? Uh, before I jump to my kicker, do you want to give us your tight end pick? I didn't give us our. Oh wow, wow! I'm just I'm just going way too fast. <laughs> I, I I gave you guys a Jared Cook and and uh, didn't give my actual uh, tight end pick, but that was Kobe Fleener. Um, and the reason being is at tight end, especially in cash games, you just want to go with the, uh, the, the cheapest viable play. And Kobe Fleener is that I think against the New England defense, we know Bill Belichick likes to make teams play left-handed. Um, and Fleener is probably going to be the fourth on that list of options that Belichick wants to take out. He's going to want to take out Michael Thomas. He's probably going to want to take out 
the Saints running backs, you know, in the passing game, especially with Kamara playing so many snaps. We know what Mark Ingram can do there as well. And then Ted Ginn, probably another guy who Belichick's looking at saying, okay, I don't want this guy to beat us deep. You know, I don't want this guy to beat us in any of these end around type of situations. So Kobe Fleener is a guy who I think they're just going to play pretty much straight up. And we saw Fleener kind of benefit from that last week and caught a touchdown and he's also back at home and like most saints and like most tight ends Fleener has played a lot better at home as a saint he averages 11.5 draftings points at home compared to 6.9 on the road and on FanDuel it's 9.5 at home compared to 5.5 on the road so Kobe Fleener should be in a really good spot and as you pointed out TJ in the two games that Fleener has played Without Willie Sneed, he's averaged six catches, 81 and a half yards, and a touchdown on eight and a half targets. That's good for 20.2 PPR points. So Kobe Fleener, probably going to be chalk, but another guy who, similar to Zach Ertz last week, just, just a good value attached to a good quarterback. And this is something for redraft leagues that I think tends to go overlooked as well, but you know, Fleener was going outside the top 12. Anytime you can get a tight end in the weight in your draft, redraft, DFS, whatever, as a value attached to a, a good quarterback, you really want to take it because these quarterbacks and, and their touchdown passes are some of the most sticky year to year stats of, of any position and any stat, which essentially means that you can really depend on quarterbacks throwing touchdowns if they throw a lot of touchdowns. And of course, some of those touchdowns are going to go to the tight end position. I know TJ that Fleener was a main uh, positive regression candidate for you mm-hmm. in your red zone expected value metric. So, you know, Kobe Fleener, um, it, it, among I'm sure many other tight ends that we'll find as the season progresses, just undervalued based on the quarterback he's attached to in a game expected to be a very uh, high scoring. So sorry about that, Kobe. Didn't mean to pass you up there. Kicker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love Kobe this week. I, I love him all season, really, so I'm rooting for him. He'll probably be anchoring my cash teams, but uh, you hinted at my kicker. We were talking about the radio, the Raiders. Uh, Giorgio Tavecchio, $4,700. I think I'm saying his name right. I'm not sure. Tavecchio? Tavecchio? That's what they said on the broadcast. I'll try. I'm not. Uh, I'm not Italian. I'm working on it. Uh, Oakland's favored by 13 and a half at home, with the second highest implied point total of the week, as we alluded to earlier. Uh, so that's just always the spot we're looking to to get a kicker on. High scoring, probably going to be ahead, so he won't be deemed useless uh, in late in the game. And then one thing we don't mention much because usually it's quite random is the distance bonus. But uh, we saw Tavecchio uh, nail a couple 50 yarders last week, and the Raiders are just a team that given a chance to score, they're going to opt for uh, going for the score over going uh, for the punt. And we've seen it in the past with Del Rio going back to uh, Oakland, New Orleans week one last year. We know he lets Janikowski uh, take a shot from pretty much anywhere reasonable on the field. And uh, he let this new kicker do it last week and it paid off. So uh, he's a guy that that could put up a, a ton of points in this spot and can get you a couple long field goals. Yeah, speaking of the distances and the distance bonus, which does go overlooked, uh, four for fours, uh, Justin Bailey, whose rights, uh, are kicker and defense positional weekly article for four for four DFS subs. He also writes the quarterback article, um, and a stacking article. A lot of great content, but his kicker article has just been so cool because mm-hmm. Justin points out all of these different 
kicker attributes regarding what distances they've been kicking from. So, you know, if a kicker has only attempted a few 50 yarders over the last couple of years, he'll note that. Or if a kicker has hit, you know, all of his 50 yarders or a good amount of them, he'll note things like that. So I think that's something that's been uh, really helpful um, just to me personally in my research, cutting down on the research time at a position that most of us don't spend as much time. And I'm sure it's been um, highly valuable to 4 for 4 DFS uh, subs as well. So um, shout out to Justin for that. And speaking of kicker names, was I the only one whose mind was blown when we found out the way to pronounce the Chargers kicker's first name? Like, it's young. I still don't know how to do way. it. It's young way. <laughs> yeah, there it is. It, it's it, it's it's spelled it's like how it's spelled. Young ho, but it's yep. young way. Young way cool. So and he yeah. can do flips and still make a field goal. Yeah, man. It just wow. Just my <laughs> my mind was just blown. Young way. Wow. Um. Okay. Defense. Seahawks. Fifty four hundred on Fanduel. Four K on DraftKings. This Seahawks defense is going to be really good. We saw glimpses last week. They held the Packers to 17 points in Lambeau, which is an accomplishment. And now they get to play, as I alluded to before, a 49ers team that scored three points at home against the Carolina defense, which is a solid defense, but not a defense that I think you would expect to just hold the team to three points. So, Maybe I'm underestimating the Carolina defense a little bit, but either way, I think the Seahawks defense is top of the line. They added Sheldon Richardson. Their only real weaknesses are at the probably the second and third cornerback positions. They have the rookie Shaq Griffin out there. Jeremy Wayne uh, had a really bad season last year. They're starting him outside, moving him into the slot. Got ejected early last week. Um, probably shouldn't have been, but against this 49er team, that's perfect because... The 49ers really only have one good receiver in Pierre Garçon. We saw Marcus Goodwin kind of go a lot higher on than I thought in some tournaments. He was double-digit ownership, which surprised me last week, but um, dropped a, a deep ball, not really a threat. So I think this this Seattle defense is a shutout threat at home as a favorite, and 30 of the 59 teams with double-digit spreads in their favor over the past three seasons have have allowed fewer than 14 points. So you have a good chance at getting at least that 7 to 13 point bonus in addition to whatever sacks or turnovers or whatnot the Seahawks produce. And another bonus to rostering the Seattle Seahawks defense special teams is that special teams now that Tyler Lockett is healthy again, looked pretty good returning some kickoffs last week. So you get that added bonus of him potentially taking one back to the house. So Seahawks defense. And we'll get into the DFS theory segment on Vegas lines. But first, I want to tell fantasy football fans, listen up. If you love fantasy football, then you need to try these new best ball leagues on my new favorite app. It's called Draft. It's a season-long league, just like you play with your friends. But with no management, just set it and forget it. Once you're done drafting, that's it. Draft takes care of the hard work, and you don't even have to set your lineup. Your best score gets automatically selected every week. You can draft a team anytime you want. Leagues start every couple of minutes. So you can join one right now. And the best part, there are no salary caps, and you can play for cold, hard cash. Leagues start from just $3. So there's a league... For everyone, it's so easy to start playing draft today. 
Just go to playdraft.com slash four for four. That's playdraft.com, the number four, the letters F-O-R, and the number four, and you can join a game in minutes. All new players get a free entry into a best ball draft when you make your first deposit, but you have to use my promo code four for four. That's right. Play a real money game for free just for using my promo code, the number four, the letters F-O-R, and the number four. Vegas Lines. We talk so much about them in DFS, and I'm sure there's a bunch of new listeners here that are wondering what the big deal is about. There's also our longtime listeners, and we have some, probably some new angles to drop on you guys. I know I've been thinking about Vegas Lines a lot differently lately, over these past few weeks especially, so... Let's get right into it, and I'll go over some basics, and then I'll kick it to TJ, because he has a little more advanced concepts to talk about related to each position. Um, he also did big game studies for each position where he found a different Vegas splits, so I'll let him talk about that. But just to start off with the basics, what we're really looking at for Vegas lines is an idea of how games are going to play out. It's, it's just a good bird's eye view of how each game is projected to play out. Um, these betting lines are, you know, Vegas is kind of, or these, I shouldn't say Vegas, but the sports books have been, uh, working on these models, um, for, for, for a long time. And they're not, they're not the, they're not, always accurate as we'll get into later but they're accurate more often than not and they're a good starting point i don't necessarily think there is a good of an ending point as we might think but they're a good starting point for kind of getting an idea of what how each game is going to play out and then especially when you're looking at the one starter positions they provide a good way to bucket potential options in a given week into different buckets in terms of favorites and particularly home favorites, road favorites, home underdog, road underdog, etc. And by bucketing players into those categories, it's shown a measurable uh, correlation to consistency. So home favorites tend to hit value the most um, for quarterbacks, running backs, kickers, defense special teams. A home favorite is has been the most consistent. And then when you have implied point totals, that's just you take the Vegas spread, which is the amount of points that the team is favored to win by. Um, you subtract that from the over-under. You divide by two. That's the underdog's total. And then you add the spread back. That's the favorite's total. And you have a little implied projected points there. And those implied projected points show a direct correlation to quarterback scoring in fantasy, a direct correlation to kicker scoring in fantasy, and then a direct negative correlation to defense special team scoring. So the lower an, an opponent's implied point total, the more points the defense special teams will score. So these Vegas lines are very helpful, especially if you're a little bit newer to DFS and you just need to get an idea of the teams and you, you're not necessarily up on every team and their strengths and their weaknesses. Vegas lines are a real quick and dirty way to kind of get your feet wet in that. And TJ, I know going into a little more advanced concepts, now we have things like, okay, we can look at the public bets and how much the public is betting on a certain team. And the reason we like to do that is not only because it can give us some insight into how teams and players may perform, but also it tends to be a reflection of what the DFS public thinks and thus a reflection of ownership. So can you just talk about um, just some of the betting trends and um, reverse line moves and how they affect uh, each position? 
Yeah, sure. We, we can touch on those. Then we could come back to some of uh, some of those big game profiles you talked about and, and how we might use these Vegas lines uh, in cash or GPPs. Um, but a, a very popular thing that happens in, in DFS or just in, in betting lines in general is, uh, in general, lines are going to move uh, congruently with how much the public is betting. So uh, there are sites like, like thespread.com that I use every single week. It shows you... Uh, where a line to open at, what it's at when you're looking at it, uh, whether it be Wednesday or Sunday morning, and then uh, how many bets in terms of percentage of bets, not money, how many actual bets uh, are on a team. Now, what usually happens is, say, uh, a team's favored by seven, and there's 65% of the bets on that team. Uh, usually, Vegas is going to move that line to seven and a half or eight to, to move betting back to the other side. When we see the opposite, when there's the majority of the bets on, on a team, but the line moves the other way, that's what's called reverse line movement. And I haven't seen a lot of data on reverse line movement necessarily, but the the general thought behind reverse line movement is that uh, there's big money coming in on the other side, meaning that sharp bettors or professional bettors are in disagreement with the public. And that's usually a very good thing to note. Uh, or Vegas doesn't mind. They want, uh, they know something that we don't know and they want the public to continue pounding that other side, whatever it might be. Uh, it's, it's basically saying that the public is wrong about something. Now, how that translates to DFS is a lot of times people will see that and then, uh, react contrary to what we might, uh, think, relative to something you just said, running backs that are home favorites. Maybe we see a home favorite running back. We see reverse line movement against that team. And then people start to temper their expectations on those teams. Uh, What I did is I went back uh, five years of data, looked at every game that had reverse line movement in it, and then compared those numbers to all of the four for four projections for every single player in that in those games, uh, and then how they actually finished. Uh, so I compared the numbers in reverse line movement games to all other games and looked for trends. I, I broke it down by uh, percentage of bets, by how much a team was favored by, and kind of in short is what I found is that in general. Uh, reverse line movement really doesn't have a direct impact as a whole uh, on fantasy output. Um, as betting became more disproportionate, meaning the there was more bets on one side, quarterbacks on teams with reverse line movement in their favor performed better relative to expectations. But uh, that, that kind of makes sense because if a game's closer, then there's a better chance that, that both, uh, both teams are, are going to put up decent points. Um, when there wasn't a big disproportionate amount of betting on either side. So if there's reverse line movement, but there was only maybe, uh, 52, 53% of the bets on one of the teams, uh, we, we didn't really see quarterbacks perform much differently. If anything, they performed a little bit worse. Uh, and then with, with running backs, we saw a little bit of the opposite. We saw when running backs were on a team that were, being uh, that the line was moving against, that there was reverse line movement against, uh, they performed worse as the as the team that was getting the favorable line movement. Uh, wide receivers, kind of all over the board. We, we've seen it before with Vegas lines. Uh, Vegas lines just don't 
tend to have a big impact on what a wide receiver is doing. A wide receiver can score in garbage time. They can score when their team's scoring a lot of points, uh, just not generally very predictive. But what all that's telling us when that line movement is, is moving against a running back, but they're still performing well, that's a little counterintuitive, right? So if, if that team that was favored by seven, that's getting 65% of the bets, their line moves to six, we might think, oh, well, maybe we should fade that running back. But really what this line movement is usually saying is that when we usually see reverse line movement, it's on very popular teams uh, that are very big favorites. We almost never see uh, reverse line movement uh, for, uh, or I'm sorry, against an underdog because usually favorites are getting bet heavily on. So we still just want to be paying attention to what this final line is. So if a team is favored by seven and there's reverse line movement that moves them to six, they're still six point favorites. And the fantasy production, the data over the last five years has shown that they perform pretty much on par, if not better than expected, because they're still big favorites. The only time that we really noticed any uh, big shift in fantasy production is when there was significant line movement, um, more than four or five points, which rarely happens. The, the line movement's usually very subtle. On average, reverse line movement was uh, just about a tenth of a point, and less than 10% of those games saw line movement over three points. Or when those games that started with a close spread were the favorites and uh, the underdogs flip. Uh, that doesn't happen very often, but but when it does, that's very notable. Otherwise, we should just take it for what it is. Just look at that final line, look who, look at those implied point totals, and uh, look at the final spread. Um, again, reverse line movement is just either Vegas or professional bettors realizing that the public is overreacting, but not so much that it's going to completely shift the dynamic of the entire game. These teams that are favored by seven, eight, nine, they're they're favored that way for a reason, and they just garner more attention. And that's why we usually see the movement on those games. Right. And that's a great point because I think a lot of people, when they're, they're kind of dialed into these lines and especially up until lock on Sunday afternoon, Sunday morning, whatever, depending on what time zone you are, people kind of freak out when they see this line movement in general mm-hmm. and especially reverse line movement. And it can really alter decision making where in fact it really shouldn't. And I'm going to get into more of just why I think we're probably letting lines impact our decision-making too much as is, but I want to first kind of get into these big game profiles and kind of set some some context up. So we'll start with quarterback in TJ. Um, just tell us like what you found with big games in regards to Vegas favorites in, in terms of implied point totals um, for, for all the positions, but especially quarterbacks, uh, running backs, and tight ends, because I know wide receiver, it's a little less pronounced. Yeah, uh, I'll go through them quickly and then let you react to them. But uh, for the most part, uh, what we find in studies such as your DFS playbook, uh, the trends that we're looking for for uh, big games, and basically I just set a threshold for each position point threshold and look for uh, players that are likely to win you tournaments. It holds pretty steady with what you found in something like cash game consistency. So for running back, I mean, for quarterbacks, uh, we generally want uh, Vegas favorites and winners. So both FanDuel, DraftKings, these big game quarterbacks were Vegas favorites over 65% of the time on the winning team uh, over 80% of the time. But what's really interesting about that is you should notice the gap there. Don't just take that and say, okay, only play uh, winning teams. These 
we saw 80% of these big game quarterbacks come from winning teams, but only 65% from favorites. That means there's a gap, right? That means there are uh, quite a few quarterbacks that aren't necessarily favorites that are winners. So maybe we can be looking to those close spreads in tournaments because we know everybody's looking at the favorites. And sure, more often than not, uh, the favorites are going to win. But a lot of times, a pretty significant amount of time, uh, the underdogs going to win. So uh, home underdogs are one that are, are really interesting to look at for quarterbacks because winning is more important than being a favorite. Fa- a favorite's just uh, kind of indicative of who's going to win. Now for running backs, that that pretty much holds true as well, especially on FanDuel where we're really looking to uh, get that positive game script. The the percentages are pretty close and the lesson is pretty close, uh, at least on FanDuel for running backs compared to, to quarterbacks. Usually favorites just over 60% of the time, about 80% of the time on the winning team, uh, which you could take from that again, close spreads, maybe the home team. Uh, it, there's a little bit of a gap there. So the favorite's not always going to win. So if you if you have a game that, that you're a little bit uh, curious about or you think the the game script can go opposite of uh, what Vegas is expecting, again, a small line, then uh, follow that. And then DraftKings is a different story. DraftKings, we saw pretty close number of favorites, 63%, but the winning team less than 70%. And what that points to on DraftKings is the difference in scoring. Difference in scoring, you get the full PPR, you get the yardage bonus, and touchdowns get diminished. So you can have a running back that's not necessarily in a perfect game script on DraftKings, but if they are that all-around back that's going to get consistent usage, especially through the air, uh, we can take those uh, Vegas lines and turn them on their head while everybody's looking to all of those favorites 45 or 35% of the time uh, big games on DraftKings came from underdogs so I, I really think that people should be uh, leveraging that in DraftKings tournaments and then uh, tight end a little bit of the same we, we want those home uh, tight ends I think kind of a, a shoehorn narrative that you and I have come up with over the past year or so is that like running backs, tight ends need to uh, get those shorter touchdowns. They need sustained drives, and a lot of times that happens uh, in winning games, late in game script, when they can get in the red zone, and they're not going to score a lot of long touchdowns. So that's why we see those tight ends on, on winning teams. But again, we see a, a pretty decent gap, 10 to 15% from the Vegas favorite to the winning team. So it's not so overwhelming that you should only be targeting favorites. Uh, if you if you see a tight end that might find himself in a positive game script, then uh, then look for that. Maybe it, it isn't reflected by a line. Maybe they're a one or two point underdog. But uh, I, I don't want to focus just on the majority here, at least for tournaments, because we want to be looking for places where we can go against the public. So yeah, we do see two thirds of the time. These positions I talked about are coming from Vegas, but that means a third of the time, these big games are coming from teams that are underdogs. So just always keep that in mind. Like we, we have a, a guidebook on what uh, Vegas tells us to do, but that kind of points more towards consistency where you're not balancing ownership in, in tournaments where, Ownership is just as important, if not more important than projections. Um, a, a player that's two to one uh, underdog to put up a big game because he is a, a underdog in the Vegas lines. Um, he's probably not uh, as unlikely as you think to put up a nice game.
Definitely. That's a great point. And that's why uh, we have GPP leverage scores on 444.com for DFS subscribers, which take all that into account, that kind of interplay between projected ownership and projected value. But I think the, the what I really want to focus on is that gap between winning teams and then favorites, because I did some research and I looked at games over the last three years. And there's a couple of really interesting things I think that stand out that whether you're a seasoned DFS player or you're a beginner, you're going to want to take note of. And the first thing is, is that games only go over the total about 48.5% of the time, which is pretty much expected because the over-under is supposed to be kind of that midpoint where Vegas wins in the long term because half the games go over, half the games go under. However, um, I think it's a 48.5% because uh, Vegas slightly inflates it because public loves to bet the the overs. Now, the important thing here is that the average game, when it goes over, it goes over by 10 points. And when it goes under, it goes under by 10 points total. Now, on a per team basis, when a team goes over its implied point total, it goes over by an average of 7.7 points. So over a touchdown. And when it goes under its implied point total, it goes under by seven points. So a whole touchdown there. So essentially what that's telling me is that there is just this major inefficiency where I think a large percentage of the DFS public is using Vegas lines kind of linearly where they're saying, okay, well, this team with the 28 implied point total is better than the team with the 27 is better than the team with the 26, etc. And in reality, that's really not going to do anything for you, but make you an overwhelmingly average DFS player. I don't think there's a major edge to be had at this point in using a lot of the Vegas lines the way they're most routinely used. I think there is, you know, still some edge to just kind of in certain situations, uh, just limiting your usage of players to, to home favorites and uh, in certain positions and, and whatnot. But even though I think most of the chalk plays in a given week tend to come from those anyway. So there's not usually a great opportunity where you can exploit that because most of the field is doing the same thing as you anyway. But where I do think you can exploit it is the where those those differences, the discrepancies in where a team falls when they go over and under. Because remember, in almost every, hardly any, you know, about two percent, two three percent of these lines are pushing, which means they're hitting exactly on the implied total or exactly on the over under. The other ninety odd some percent are going over or they're going under, and when they do, they're going over or under by an by a lot on average. So. What you have to do as a DFS player to be good is you have to look at these games and take a stand on the ones where you feel that these Vegas lines aren't accurate. And there are going to be a lot of inaccurate ones in every given week because Vegas is, their their lines are essentially, over the long term, Vegas is going to beat pretty much any better. Most betters, you know, the majority of betters. Um, and the way they do this is they just have this nice little four to five percentage advantage. Um, so it's not this overwhelming advantage where we just use this as gospel as to how many points a team is going to score, how many touchdowns a team is going to score. Instead, what you want to do is kind of focus on the teams who you think are going to go over their implied point total and to a lesser extent, 
the games that are going to go over their total, especially if there's two good quarterbacks involved, because then you that's a shootout situation. So those are the kind of things that we really need to be focusing on in terms of Vegas lines. It's using them as, an, as a pivot point to now say, okay, well, which teams are going to go over and which teams are going to go under? Because if the team is going to go o- over, they're probably going to go over by a lot. So, you know, if you think that, you know, for example, the the Oakland Raiders are going to go over their implied point total this week, well, that means on average, if a team goes over by seven, you expect the Raiders to score 35 points or, or the Seahawks to score 35, 34 points or something like that. So if you think those games will go over, I'm not saying you have to, but if you, if you think that, then, then that's major because that changes a lot of things and, and that, and it changes a lot of things in regards to how you would construct your lineup and, and build your player exposures because a lot of the DFS public is kind of mirroring the Vegas lines, um, rather than taking a stand and saying, you know, I think this game is going to go under. And, um, that's kind of what we alluded to somewhat, you know, at least I did in, in, in one of my bold calls last week where I said, Hey, you know, I think this Titans, Titans Raiders game is going to go over now, under. Now I didn't, I think I predicted it was going to go under by 20 points. Um, it didn't quite go under by that much. I think it went under by about nine points. It was a 42 total. Um, the over under was 51, I believe, but things like that can be very important because if you got off some of those 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 major stacks in in that Oakland Tennessee game and pivoted to some lower owned options, you know maybe a Matthew Stafford, Jared Goff, Tyrod Taylor, players like that, you would have a major advantage over the field just because even though Mariota and Carr didn't do poor like that poorly relative to the rest of the field and what was a down week for quarterback production they were so common and the lineups created around them were so common that those lineups weren't the ones that won you know the big money you know I think Deshaun Kaiser was in the winner winning lineup in I think it was the DraftKings Power Super one of the one of the three maxes I forget which one but one of those um Deshaun Kaiser was in the winning lineup and then you know Matthew Stafford was in the winning Sunday million um, and so there, there's just these situations where if you if you kind of have a, a feeling about a certain game, I think you have to, to 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 run with it because as I watch these these games each week, and I'm looking at the Vegas lines and looking at the ones that fell far from the total, one of the things that really stands out that they don't touch on that that these lines don't seem to be incorporating fully is offensive line play. Mm-hmm. And that's a big thing that I think in week one just kind of shut shut down a lot of these teams and made a lot of games go under the total, especially, you know, it was 10 or 15 games that failed to go over. And you saw teams average 3.6 yards per carry. The NFL average was 4.2 last year. And you saw teams give up a 7.1% sack rate where the NFL average was 5.8% last year. So poor offensive line play really kind of led to a lot of struggles and a lot of teams kind of not doing what was expected according to the totals. And I don't think these totals are really taking that into account because you know, I've, I've read books on this, you know, as a kid more so than, than currently, but the way Vegas cr- kind of creates these totals is they, they start with these power ratings for each team's offense and their defense, and they're taking into account, you know, uh, passing yards and efficiency and all these things. But a lot of the times the, the sharper betters are the ones that are saying, okay, look, this team has a bad offensive line, a bad matchup or something. And, and, and the line is moving to reflect that the Vegas, the sports books themselves aren't necessarily putting out these lines taking into account offensive lines or even things like game script and and play calling tendencies on early downs and things like that. So there's a lot of edges, I think, to be had if you can kind of say, okay, these teams are going to come out very pass heavy and that that might lead to not as much clock going off 
and and there's a better chance of this game going over the total or vice versa. And we, one thing we saw, we saw an example of that with the Jaguars line last week where uh, a couple of people at 4 for 4 were really on the Jaguars, including myself, and they turned out to be about 6% owned or under in a lot of tournaments I was in. And, you know, it was a Vegas line. Houston, I think, was five, five and a half point favorite. And really, I didn't think taking into full account just how bad their line was going to be without Dwayne Brown with a converted tight end at left tackle. And we saw the Jaguars rack up 10 sacks and win that game handily and completely render the Texans defense unusable because the game script just wasn't in their favor. The Jaguars were able to just pound the ball with Leonard Fournette. They, Blake Bortles rarely dropped back to pass. I believe he had 21 pass attempts. So if you kind of took a stand on that game and said, Hey, you know, I think this is a bad line. I think the Jaguars should actually be favored or it should at least be equal. Um, you might have had a really profitable, um, week with your defense because a lot of people ended up having to pay, um, on FanDuel for that Rams defense to get that 28 points. But, uh, the Jaguars defense, uh, was, I think, $500 cheaper. So, um, some major edges to be had by just taking a stand on these, uh, Vegas games and lines. Yeah. And I mean, I think a couple points you made that really stood out to me is one, people are using these lines, uh, linearly, which, uh, as, as we've noted with, other things on four for four, like like value and now with Vegas lines, uh, just just assuming that things are going to fall into place exactly as uh, as predicted is going to happen, and that's really dangerous. Uh, in fact, over the last few years, it's actually uh, the teams that have been projected for the third most points that have scored the most points uh, on average. So these things are just never going to happen exactly as we expect. And then uh, that note you wrapped up on uh, the offensive lines, I, I think it just always, no matter how much we talk about it, there just aren't the counting stats that we have for other positions. So I think people either ignore them or evaluate them incorrectly. But in fact, it's it's the center after the quarterback uh an injury to that player is what moves the line uh, more than any other position. And then we've seen anecdotal evidence of how important offensive lines can be. Uh, everyone points to, to Kyle Shanahan last year, but it was it was the signing of Alex Mack that I said on Twitter was the most important free agent signing. Uh, and, and people still aren't pointing to that as a, a very integral part of the Falcons offense. And it's probably no coincidence that they took their big jump when Mack showed up. Uh, so really, really good points there to wrap up on definitely so let's use that to segue into our bold calls for the week why don't you start us off with your let's go with the game prediction first uh game prediction i'm going to go with uh, the Miami Dolphins ruined the Chargers' home opener. Uh, the Chargers are going to be playing football in a soccer stadium, so they deserve to lose. And they're favored by four, <laughs> they're favored by four and a half points at home. Uh, the The Chargers let the Broncos uh, run the second most plays in the red zone last week. Miami was uh, one of the most run heavy teams in the red zone. I think Miami's going to try to uh, slow this game down uh, with Jay Ajayi. I think they're going to do it very successfully. Uh, Chargers defense did not look good against a, a pretty mediocre Denver offense last week. So I like Miami to pull off the upset this week. I like that. And Jay Ajayi, probably another guy not getting talked about too much. I think we have him projected around in that like one to five ownership range mm-hmm. because there's so many other options uh, projected to get more ownership in his price range. So I think you know whether he hits that range or maybe a little higher, maybe in that five to 10% range, I don't think he's going any higher than that. So that's an interesting play. For my uh, bold game call, I'm going with the Pittsburgh Minnesota game which 
right now has an over-under of 45 implied is Pittsburgh 26, Minnesota 19. I'm going to say that game goes at least 10 points over um, in, and is one of the top three highest scoring games of the week. And my reasoning is just kind of goes back to what we were talking about when you want to kind of look for these games and these Vegas ones that you disagree with. And in this Pittsburgh-Minnesota matchup, I think a lot of people see two pretty strong defenses and, and you know, at least for Minnesota, a defense that shut down the Saints last week, forced them into a lot of field goals. And then you see Pittsburgh just kind of played this very um, underwhelming game with Cleveland last week. They bottled up Cleveland's running at- rushing attack. They got seven sacks on Deshaun Kaiser. And I think people are just looking at these two defenses and saying, hey, this is kind of a a blah matchup, you know, kind of don't really know what to do with this matchup. Not, not a matchup you really want to target in DFS. But I think that this game could provide some major opportunity. And here's why the, the Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh has a strong run defense. Yes. But what Minnesota has shown that they will do is Minnesota will use the short passing game and Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, sacked Deshaun Kaiser last week seven times in addition to playing strong run defense, but that's because Kaiser was holding the ball a lot. That's where that short passing game of Minnesota also comes in to effect. I think Minnesota will just play that short passing game and they're, they'll come out very pass heavy. And with Dalvin Cook, Kyle Rudolph, Adam Thielen, and Stephon Diggs, they have four matchup pieces. And when you have an offense that has four matchup pieces, usually can find at least one given mismatch on a given play or one guy that's going to break open on a given play, um, even against strong defenses. And I think that, I think Minnesota will go pass heavy for that reason. And then I think on the other side of the ball, Pittsburgh, they came out and in the first half, um, first and second down last week, under two minutes to go. I mean, outside of two minutes to go, Pittsburgh passed on 85.7% of their plays. Um, and that was the most in the league by a wide margin. They frequently went to no back sets in the second half. Um, despite the game being close, they, they, they came out very aggressively. And I think they're going to do a, something similar against Minnesota because Minnesota, as we saw on national TV, bottled up that, uh, that New Orleans Saints running game. So I think both of these teams want to come out pass heavy in this game. That will lead to kind of a, uh, a game script where if, if, if you're passing, both teams are passing a lot, you know, a failed pass is usually an incompletion. That that slows down the game. That that leaves time on the clock versus when you're running and the, and the clock keeps going or whatever. So I, re- I really think this game has a chance to kind of be extended. And I think both of these teams, because you look at, you look at New Orleans and how they match up to Minnesota where they struggled on the road. And then you have Pittsburgh at home where Ben Roethlisberger with Martavis in the lineup averaging, you know, well over 300 yards per game. Um, and then you look at the matchups Pittsburgh can give you. They can give you Antonio Brown. That's better than Michael Thomas. They can give you Martavis Bryant. That's better, um, th- than Ted Ginn. They can give you Le'Veon Bell. You know, that's better than Kamara or any of those Saints running backs. So I think Pittsburgh can just challenge Minnesota. With with with, the, with these matchups, and you know, I think as good as Minnesota's defense is, with with this game, I think being a pass heavy game, I think this could be one of the highest scoring games of the week. So, TJ, what about your player? Yeah, I'm gonna go with uh, Curran Williams is in the winning millionaire and Sunday million lineups. Uh, we really liked the the Rams running back defense stack last week against the Colts. Now we're gonna get it in a spot where uh, Cardinals came out really flat last week. David Johnson's hurt. Uh, people are are going to shy away from this 
really, really great game script spot because uh, of what happened last week. And uh, I do think Kerwin Williams is probably going to lose quite a bit of uh, passing work to Andre Ellington. In fact, we saw that happen uh, immediately last week. But I'm not worried about Chris Johnson. Like if, I, if I'm avoiding a player because of Chris Johnson, um, I think I need to go back on my process. Like Chris Johnson, they just re-signed him for depth. I think Kerwin Williams can get well over 20 touches because I think the Cardinals bounce back. You mentioned it with uh, Larry Fitzgerald. I think they could hang a really nice number on the Rams. And uh, again, if, if you can just get this positive game script and Kerwin Williams can, can get 20 touches and close it down down the stretch. I think he could put up a really nice number against uh, a Colts team that's just in shambles. Yeah, that's a bold call. That's one of those be greedy when others are fearful ones because I think a lot of people are going to be off Kerwin Williams because of Andre Ellington's uh, said involvement in the passing game. So I like that. Um, I have Marshawn Lynch. Last week, he didn't score a touchdown. Um, the Raiders threw the ball inside the 10 four times, all to Amari Cooper. The first time, it went really well. He muscled his way into the end zone, maybe showing off some of that bulk, putting that some of that bulk he, in the offseason to good use. Um, the next three times, I don't think I've ever seen this in the history of the NFL of watching games. And I've been watching games since I was probably about five years old, and I'm 30 now. I don't think I've ever seen a player get three red zone targets on first, second, and third down inside the five and drop all three of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, I know one of them was kind of deflected, but it, all three of them hit his hands. Should have came down with, with all three of them. Didn't come down with either of them. I think this week, Marshawn Lynch drops the hat trick on the Jets. Three touchdowns. I, I, one of my bold calls this year was that Marshawn Lynch was going to lead the NFL in rushing touchdowns. And for him to do that, he has to have multi touchdown games against opponents like the Jets. So I'm going the hat trick, Marshawn Lynch, three touchdowns and the highest scoring running back of the week. Yeah, I like that call a lot. Marshawn's a guy I was actually on last week, not necessarily because I thought that uh, the Raiders were going to win like they did, but it was just a really good leverage spot because now because their their passing game was so popular. And now they're just in a spot like we already talked about. That whole offense is going to be way under-owned compared to what it should be because of those other two big games. So I love the Marshawn call. Yeah, he's he's just in a smash spot. I mean, at home. I mean, if he if he's not smashing in this in this in this game, then it's you know it's going to be tough to predict with him um, going forward. But thank you guys for listening to DFS MVP. Reminder: if you rate and review the podcast and send us a screenshot to DFS MVP, you can get twenty five percent off a four for four DFS subscription. We'll get you a code for that. So be sure to do that if you haven't subscribed yet, and. Be sure to follow TJ on Twitter at TJ Hernandez and follow myself on Twitter at Chris Raybon. TJ, any last words? Uh, like Diddy said at the top of the show, let's get it. And by it, I mean this shmoney. Get this shmoney. You love it. Make moves major. Hide out of nature if your girl keep coming around. And I'm a blazer. I'm the bad boy flavor. Light blue gators. Not guilty. Come on. Make this money. Take this money. Ain't no way you can take this from me. Ain't funny. Take it, honey, take it, money. Now let's get it. I be the East Side Soprano, Rob Marciano, flowing a channel with the Iverson handle. 45 sparks turn your day great flannels. Left the yay off the mantle, then proceed to dismantle.